a series that we've called Growing Together, looking at some of the means which God in his wisdom uses to grow the church. And I don't just mean to grow the church numerically, but I mean to grow the church, his people, in maturity, in godliness, in holiness, in the likeness of his son, Christ Jesus. And today, I want you to hear that if you're a Christian, God wants to use you for the maturity and growth of others, others in this room. (laughs) That's part of the reason we're together. That's part of the purpose of the church. And so today we're going to look at the subject of investing in others, or to use a often used and often misunderstood word, discipleship. We're looking at discipleship today because, you see, if you hadn't noticed, and I'm guessing you probably have, but if you haven't noticed, you don't live in isolation. Your life, your words, your actions, your choices of how you spend your time and your money have an impact on those around you. Don't they? They do. Far more so than we often actually want to think about. Just a silly thing like what coffee you buy has an impact on a huge number of people actually if you follow it through. And if you're interested about that, I'm sure Johnny can tell you. I learned lots about how fair trade in the coffee industry really doesn't mean much at all this week. But anyway, we don't live in isolation. And if you're a Christian, your relationship with God doesn't stop with you because you don't live in isolation. In fact, it is supposed to overflow and impact those around you. And that has always been the case. We see it from the word go in scripture. And so we're going to do a like super, super, super quick biblical overview of some of those moments where we get to see that actually our lives were always supposed to have an impact on those around us. And then we're going to start to look at what that might look like for us. You see, right in the beginning in Genesis, when God created Adam and Eve, he created mankind in his image And he commissioned Adam and Eve to do something. He commissioned them to fill the earth with more image bearers, to be fruitful and multiply, to reproduce more who would bear God's image in the earth. In Genesis 12, when God called Abraham, he said to him, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. Others will be blessed through you. In Jeremiah 29, God tells his people to build houses, settle down, get married, have children, increase in number, and seek the peace and prosperity of the city. In other words, God instructs them to live for the good of the city and the glory of God. They're supposed to be a a positive impact from their lives that moves out into those around them. When Jesus called his first followers, we read in Matthew 4 or Mark 1, he set the tone right from the word go. He called them and he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. 
wasn't simply follow me and we'll have a nice time together, like follow me and we'll have a, a cozy huddle. He said, follow me and I'm going to show you how to call others to follow me, who will call others to follow me, who will call others to follow me. Make disciples. When he commissioned his disciples after the resurrection in Matthew 28, he said, go and make disciples. It's almost a restating of God's first commissioning to Adam and Eve. See, in the garden, God said to them, fill the earth, multiply. Like, fill the earth with my image bearers. And then God says, or Christ says to his people, go and make disciples. It's almost a repeat of the command. It's fill the earth with my image bearers. Fill the earth with those who will reflect my glory and worship me. There's an expected overflow and an intentional pouring out that's supposed to happen into others' lives to bless others, to bring them to God and to help them to come to maturity in God. And we, we could keep going on through the Bible. I mean, we could open the Old Testament almost anywhere and find this dynamic at work. We could open the New Testament almost anywhere and see this at work in the life of Christ or in the life of the early church. You know, you see in the early church, all the way through, they were so committed to each other's growth and development. They cared for one another. They saw that one another's needs were met. But there was also an outward-reaching dynamic. It didn't just stop in the people of God, in the household of God. Paul was able to say to the church in Corinth about his own life, 1 Corinthians 11, he said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ or imitate me as I imitate Christ. God doesn't save you in isolation. Your relationship with him is not in a vacuum. It's worked out in the context of community, the local church. He saves us into the church. And he doesn't grow us in isolation either. He grows us together in community. He uses others to help you grow and he wants to use you to help others grow. Guys, it's really important that we get this. Okay, I need you and you need me. That's why we're together as a church family. There are people here for you to imitate as they imitate Christ. And there are people here who will imitate you in ways, as you imitate Christ. There's always an overflow. Whether you like it or not, our lives have an impact on those around us. Consciously or not, we're investing in others' lives, positively or negatively. The question I want us to consider in this subject is... What are we investing? In what way are we pouring out into the lives of others for their good and for God's glory? I find it a challenge that Paul was able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. But that's what we're supposed to be doing. It's actually what Jesus instructed his disciples 
We've already quoted it, Matthew 28. When he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He said, go, make disciples, go with purpose, go with a focus. Teach people to obey all that Jesus has commanded. How do we do that? We do that partly with our mouths, opening scripture together, but we also do that with our lives, through modeling. So you say, this is, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Like, come and join us. How do we do it? What does it look like practically? Well, I guess firstly, we need to understand what being a disciple means. If we're going to make disciples, don't we? Is that fair? <laughs> I know lots of you will know this. But ultimately, being a disciple of someone means growing like them. means becoming like them. means being conformed more and more into their likeness. Could disciple in all disciple people in all kinds of ways. But we as Christians are supposed to grow more like Jesus and encourage others to do the same. So how do we do that? How do we grow more like Jesus? Well, that's some of what this series is about, but but one of the things I wanted to say was this. We grow like him by getting to know him. We get to know him as he's revealed himself in scripture. So we read the Bible. Listen to the Bible. There's some great, if you struggle with reading, there are some really great audio versions of the Bible that you can listen to. There's loads of apps out there. Like my favorite is one called Dwell. I particularly like Dwell because you can choose the voices and there are some really cool voices on there. Uh, my, my favourite's Felix. Sorry, Victoria's smiling because her favourite's Felix as well. We've had this conversation before. Dwell's a great audio Bible. It's well worth it. It's, it does cost a little bit of money. But actually, if you struggle to read, and I know some people do, that's okay. Listen to it. You know, most of the early church didn't read either. So when they gathered together... Someone would stand up and read to them. That's why we find instructions about devoting yourself to the public reading of Scripture. It's important that people hear the Word of God. So read Scripture. Listen to it as you do. Consider what it shows you about our Lord. What He's like who he is, it will help you to get familiar with him, to grow in love of him. It's one of the main ways he's chosen to reveal himself to us. And of course, he revealed himself to us in nature, in creation, in the way he's provided. It's stunning. But he's also given us scripture as one of the primary ways in which he's revealed himself to us, that we understand who he is and what he's like and how he deals with people. 
that we understand his grace and his mercy and his provision, his goodness. We need to read it. That's one way which we get to know him, that we might grow in his likeness. Another is to find others who are more like Jesus than you are and learn from them. Spend time with them. Ask them to invest in you. Pursue those kind of relationships. I don't know how intentional you are about that kind of thing, but I want to encourage you, be purposeful. Like If you see someone, there's, there's an aspect of their lives that you think is particularly Christ-like and godly, that as you read scripture and you see the person and work of Jesus there, you think, wow, I want to be more like that. And you see someone in the church who's more mature in that area than you are, get alongside them. Ask them to help you. Ask them to speak into your life. Ask them to pray with you. Pursue those kind of relationships. And also consider who you could do that for too. Consciously invest in others. Encourage them to grow more like Jesus. Okay. Practically, how do we do that? How do we go about it? Like, do we have to like set up a weekly meeting? Do we give people like something to read and then, like, well, I mean, you could. Like, that that's a way, and sometimes that can be a really helpful thing. But I want to suggest we look at how Jesus modelled this, because we're wanting to grow more like Him, right? So if we're wanting to be disciples of Him, who disciple others to become like Him, how did He do it? Well, Jesus did teach in the temple and in other public settings with great crowds gathered around. And that was important. And actually, I think it's important for us to gather and to hear the preaching of the word. But that was only one way in which Jesus invested in people's lives and taught people, discipled them. See, Jesus actually shared his life with those around him. If you've ever spent any time reading the Gospels, you will notice that Jesus spent an awful lot of time with his disciples. And in the midst of life, he taught them and they learned from him. I think there's a lot we can learn from that. I mean, I've used this illustration before, but if... <laughs> Imagine if, in trying to parent my children, we got together for 45 minutes or so, once a week, and I said to them, guys, this is everything you need to know about this week. These are, these are all the things, and this is, this is what it looks like to grow in maturity as children this week. This is... This is everything you need to know. And then I was like, cool. See you next week. <laughs> Go do it. And then just ignored them for the rest of the week. And then we got together the next week. I was like, so, how did it go? I've got another 45 minutes of input for you. Like, you would think I was crazy to try and parent my children like that. And it would be crazy. They, I would be neglectful, actually, as a parent. And they really wouldn't learn what they need to learn about life, 
But that's not how we parent. And that's not what Jesus did with his disciples. He spent time with them. Large amounts of time. Sharing life. You see, the truth is, is you can only keep up a front for so long. So if your only contact and connection with other Christians and with the church community is for a couple of hours on a Sunday, then, like, honestly, like, you can come in and you can put on your, like, Sunday smile. And when people ask you how you're doing or how your week's been, yeah, yeah, it's been pretty good, yeah. Uh, you know, work's been a bit busy, but uh, it's, it's, it's okay, it's good. And you can have those surface conversations and you can disappear again and no one has any idea what's really going on in your life. They can't speak into it. They can't help you grow in maturity. And you can't help them either. But you can only keep up that front for so long. If you spend enough time with someone, sharing food together, socializing together, going for a walk together. If you spend enough time in and around one another, sooner or later your heart goes down. And people get to see who you really are. You can't keep the pretense going. Your words and actions reflect what's really going on inside. Where you're really up to. What you really believe. And then there's opportunity for growth. There's opportunity for them to speak into your life and for you to speak into theirs. Jesus spent this kind of time with his disciples. And, and as he did, the disciples let their guard down. And they said some real stupid stuff at times. <laughs> they, they said some really silly things. And as they did, those things gave a window into the real condition of their hearts. And I'm no different to them. Spend enough time with me, enough time around my family, you're going to hear me say some stuff that I regret, but that will tell you the real condition of my heart and where I need Christ and where I need to grow. And, and as they did... Jesus took the opportunity to teach them and to help them grow. We, we could look at some examples in Luke 9, verse 46 through 48. An argument started amongst the disciples. So they're walking along the road somewhere, and as they are, an argument kicks off between some of the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. <laughs> Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Jesus knew what's going on for them. And so he straight away teaches. He brings an illustration that exposes the condition of their hearts and says, no, 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 this is what it looks like to follow me. Humility. This is what I'm modeling. Guys, this is what it looks like to grow in my likeness. He used real life situations to teach them. He observed the everyday stuff of life and taught through it. You read the Gospels, you find things like the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus 
is looking around what's there and, and says to them, he's like, hey, look at those flowers. Have you ever seen a king that's dressed as well as those? God created them like that. Think about the birds. Have they got barns to store their grain? Are they worried about where their food's coming from? Oh, God cares for them. Don't you know he cares for you even more? He used these everyday, ordinary things. He observed the actions of others and used it as an opportunity to teach. Like this example in Mark 12. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money in the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had to live on. He just, as he observed this woman's faithful obedience to God and trust in God, he pulled her out as an example and said, Guys, that's what it looks like. See, we can do this. Yeah, as you see things that are praiseworthy, that are godly in the character of others. Call it out. Point it out to those around you. Share it with those in your life group. Share it with those in your family. Hey, you know what I saw the other day? I saw this person doing this, and it just reminded me of the the goodness of God towards us. Like, we can do these kinds of things that help one another grow to maturity. He was intentional and practical He gave them instructions and sent them out. We find this account in Luke 10 where he gives his disciples instructions and sends them out. And as they come back, he gets them to feed back to him. And they have a debrief on how it went. And he uses it as an opportunity to teach. Guys, we we can do this kind of thing with one another. We should do this kind of thing with one another. Like, how's that gone this week? Following on from gospel fluency... We learned loads in that course together about how we might apply the gospel into our own hearts and into the lives of those around us. How we listen well and learn how to communicate the good news of Jesus in a way that people would understand it. Have you, have you checked in with anyone since to ask how that's going? I, I'd encourage you. We need to be doing this stuff for one another. How did it work for Jesus? Well, we read from Luke ten seventeen, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, Jesus affirms them in what they've done. It's great. (laughs) Like the devil's defeated. You've got authority to do these things. But he teaches them, don't rejoice that the demons submit to you. Rejoice that you're saved. Get your focus in the right place. They were with Jesus in the flesh and they were finding their joy in something other than the hope that they have in him. Jesus lovingly taught them in that moment, said, find your joy in me, not in your accomplishments. Guys, we can do this kind of stuff for one another. How about you? But like, I find it so easy to find my joy in accomplishments or success. 
what I've managed to do, what someone thinks about me. I need brothers and sisters who will speak these kind of words to me and will say, hey, hey, Owen, don't find your joy in ministry success. Don't find your joy in the accomplishments of your children. Don't find your joy in... (laughs) Remember, find your joy here. Your name's written in heaven. Your salvation's secure because of Jesus. Let that be your anchor. Let that be the source of your joy and your hope. I need you to speak those kind of things to me. And my guess is you need me and you need one another to speak those kinds of truths. Or maybe not. (laughs) Maybe you've all got this nailed. I don't know. My guess is we need one another in this. I've experienced this kind of stuff. And I'm so grateful that I have. Like a, a, a kind of silly example, perhaps. But in the year before Jenny and I got married, I lived with a family from church. A bit like, not that either of them are planning on getting married anytime soon, to the best of my knowledge, but a bit like Mitch and AJ are living with us at the moment. I lived with a family from church. And in that year, Tom, the father of the family I was living with, called me out on some areas of particularly of laziness in my life that he could see. He said, there's, there's loads of stuff that's great, Owen, but, but in this, you're not honoring God with the gifts he's given you. You're, you're not honoring God with your time. And actually, you're not going to love and serve your wife well when you get married. And, and he was right. I needed him to speak that into my life. I would not have blessed Jenny well if I had carried that behavior into our marriage. Did it hurt? Yeah. Am I grateful he said it? Yeah. Is Jenny grateful he said it? You bet she is. (laughs) Guys, we need to be speaking these kinds of things to one another. Parents, you need to be purposeful in doing this with your children. Those of you who have children, they're your first mission field. Your, your primary focus as parents is the evangelism and discipleship of your children. Look for opportunities to bring the gospel into your parenting. Jenny is amazing at this. I'm learning from her all the time. She's so much better at it than I am with our children. Not, not letting stuff go and not just focusing on behavior, but getting to the heart with our children, bringing them back to Jesus, pointing them to him. She's much better than I am. One of my friends in the church, Jenny and I, used to be out in Southampton. Actually, where James and Madeline have, and Darren have come from was some years ago when we were there, this is just an example of of these kind of conversations and how they can work, was getting to a point where he was getting really consumed with work. He was a talented physio. He was a really talented physio. And he had some ambition to be the best he could, which there's nothing wrong with. He wanted to be the absolute top of his game. And he'd begun to take on loads of extra shifts in order to 
kind of gain experience and to work up the ladder in terms of what he wanted to do in the hospital. Take on loads of extra responsibilities. But what that meant as a consequence was that he'd got to a point actually where he'd then begun to pull back in terms of serving in the local church. And actually, his marriage, to a certain extent, was beginning to feel some strain. And there was some tension there. Because he was throwing himself into his career to such an extent that it was impacting his relationship. Impacting his relationship with his wife, but also impacting his relationship with the church, where he was around less, and he wasn't available to serve. And he was beginning to take a backward step from some things. And I tell you what, Talking to him about it was probably one of the hardest, because he was a good friend, was one of the hardest conversations I feel like I've had to have. But I'm so glad I had to do it, and I'm so glad I did it. Because as we talked, we realized that in some ways, work had become a kind of functional savior for him. And he needed to revisit his priorities to trust God again, to provide for him, to find his value in who God said he was rather than security in his salary or value and status in promotion at the hospital, which he was chasing after. And actually, as we talked about it and as we prayed together and he responded to that conversation, he made some adjustments and he pulled back from some of the things that he'd stepped into in terms of his career And actually, he and his wife talked together and stepped up in terms of what they were doing in serving. Ended up taking on the youth work in the church. And they're doing amazingly as a family. And everybody's journey is different. And in the end, actually, Pete, having thought that he was going to be the best physio going, in the end, actually, ended up stepping out of that world and working for the church. And now he's actually leading a church down in the southwest of England. Was that conversation with him hard? Yes. Was I tempted to duck it? Yes. (laughs) Am I glad I had it? Yeah, I really am. Do I always respond well in the moment when people have those kind of conversations with me? No. But am I grateful when they do? Yeah. Do I always have those conversations with others? No. Am I always praying for others' growth and maturity? No. I wish I could say yes to both of those. But that's just real, isn't it? And and my guess is that those answers are the same for you guys. Which got me to thinking as I prepared, why not? Why don't I always have those conversations? Why am I not constantly praying for others' growth and maturity? What stops me from speaking into others' lives like this? What holds us back from effectively discipling one another in this way in the church? From gospeling one another in this way? Well, there are loads of things that can hold us back from living like this. But I think there's one major one that if we get it straight, would deal with the others, actually. 
And I think it's all about love. And to what extent we love others as we've been loved by Christ. Because I think, for me, and my guess is for lots of us, our temptation can be to prioritize our comfort over someone else's character and growth. Because it's, it's like uncomfortable and difficult to have that conversation. And time-consuming often. To build relationships with people that can bear the weight of those kind of conversations. And so it's, it's kind of more comfortable to, to step away from that. I think sometimes we can confuse ourselves and we prioritize people's happiness over their holiness. Uh, and what I mean by that is that I think we can worry more about upsetting someone in the moment and in the immediate than actually loving them enough to speak into their life in a way that's going to bring health in the long term and maturity in the long term. And God doesn't do this with us. I'm so glad he doesn't. You know, God is far more interested in your holiness and your maturity. He is far more interested in making you more like Jesus than he is in giving you what you think will make you happy. Does that make God cruel? No. It makes him a loving father who has your best at heart and a long view in mind. See, I would be a terrible father if I prioritized my children's immediate and short-term happiness all the time. I would. I'd be like the most popular dad on the planet, but I would be the worst. Because children want all kinds of things that aren't good for them. I think we all do that. If you've ever parented young children or even spent time looking after any children, you will know that sometimes they want things that could be dangerous, maybe even life-threatening, like sticking their fingers in a socket or running out into a road. If you've ever looked after young children, you'll know that to be true. I mean, it's crazy some of the things that they really, really want to do and that will really, really make them happy. <laughs> but we love them enough to endure their tears and tantrums and sometimes their declarations of hatred towards us in favor of their long-term health and safety. And God is our perfect father. And actually, he loves you enough to endure your tantrums <laughs> for your long-term health, and growth, and security. And one of the ways in which he works for our growth is that he puts us in community like this. He puts us in the church. But guys, we need to love one another enough to pray for one another, to practically care for one another, and to disciple one another 
in the kinds of ways we've been talking about. But how do we grow in that kind of love as a community? Is that like a, we just kind of, I will love you more. <laughs> well, you can't do that, can you? That doesn't work. And if all you hear me say is, you need to love one another more, then you go away feeling like, oh, sheesh, how do I do that? Like, I don't, it's not that I don't love people, but how, like, how do I, oh, like, I want to do it, but, well, I want to suggest that this is how. We remember how Christ has loved us. We daily remind ourselves and remind one another of how Christ has loved us. We let it do us good. We let it stir our affections for him. And we let it shape our love for others. We daily, consistently remember that as we read in Philippians 2, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. To what end? So that he can have a relationship with you. Serious, costly, committed love. Amazing. Thank you, Lord. We remember that it says in 2 Corinthians 5, that he who had no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We remember, as it says in Romans 5, that just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we remember what we read in Ephesians 2. That like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Amazing love, eh? I want to pray for us. And then we're going to come back to worship and share communion. But Lord.